here. Your questions for the exam a week from today are posted on Blackboard, uh, so you can you can look at them. Uh, so those, those are available under the course uh, documents section, uh, exam, study. Okay, so those are available. Okay, so we were talking about soils last time. Because <clears throat> when you talk about plants, soils are extremely important <clears throat> because soil is where they get all most of their nutrients. The only real nutrient they get from anywhere other than in the soil is uh, their carbon source, which is carbon dioxide, which comes out of the air. Okay, all their other nutrients, everything else they need in order to build all of the molecules that they need, everything from sugars, which of course is what photosynthesis does, but then they need to build proteins and nucleic. What was that all about? Okay, whatever. Um, one of our complaints to our IT guy last time is why are there constantly alerts coming up about downloading new software? Why don't you guys do that? Because you know, we can't. They don't. We don't have the. Uh, we don't have administrative rights on the computers. So. Okay, so at any rate, everything else has to come. So in order to build proteins and nucleic acids and lipids, and uh, they have to have other nutrients other than carbon. They all come from the soil. So that's what we're looking at. Now, soil uh, particle sizes obviously vary. Uh, the sand actually is the largest sized particle. So when you're on the beach, uh, the particles of sand, you can actually feel them. I mean, they're small, they're small but they're, they're relatively large. Um, and of course, they don't hold water. Water just goes right on through. Uh, so sandy soils tend, tend to hold no water. Uh, I lived in Colorado Springs, and when it would rain, we'd get a thunder, afternoon thunderstorm, we get a downpour. I could go out in the backyard, and half an hour later, stick my fingers down into soil, and it was dry. Because uh, it's mostly it was very sandy, and it just didn't hold any water. It's why only certain kinds of plants can grow there. Okay, silt is the next size. The silt is primarily uh, uh, runoff uh, through, from rivers, uh, you know, erosion from, of rocks and, and that, that uh, and it's a, a medium-sized particle. And then the finest particles are clay, which is why around here, uh, not so much out this way, but down toward Hampton, um, if you remember, you do see some of it here, when we had the hurricane, when the trees went down and they uprooted, uh, they didn't go very deep. The roots don't go deep because when I, where I lived down in Hampton or in York County before, um, we had a clay, there's a clay layer uh, underneath the soil. In my backyard where there was obviously fill put in, I could get down maybe uh, eight inches before I hit the clay layer. In the front yard, the clay layer was right at the surface. That thing is impermeable. I could pour water in there and it would just sit there, just lay there. Clay particles are packed so tightly and so tree roots don't grow down into that. And that's why our trees are so shallow rooted and why they come go down in, in a strong wind, particularly when the soil, what soil there is, is wet. Okay, uh, so these are the three types of particles that make up soils, and all soils are made up of some combination of them. Okay, um, and ideally the soil has some of all of them. Now, loam is, uh, you may have hear this if you uh, have a garden or anything, is considered to be ideal for growth. And there's the, the, uh, the, the makeup of it. So it has, uh, as you can see, 40% sand silt and 20% clay. Um, and, and this allows uh, for all the things a plant needs. First of all, there's permeability. Stuff can filter down, water can filter down through. The clay holds water and the minerals, the, the clay particles. Um, and the sand portions of it allow for aeration because the roots need oxygen. Okay, the soil can't be saturated either. That doesn't work. Okay, so uh, this is kind of usually considered, so if you buy topsoil, uh, you know, whether you buy it by the bag or somebody delivers it or whatever, it should have something close to this uh, in its makeup. If it's topsoil, you make it a little more organic matter in it, but uh, this is kind of what we're looking for. Uh, humus, which is the organic matter, uh, if you look at a, a soil profile here, you can see that up toward the top it's very dark. Uh, this is the uh, decomposing organic matter, so there's lots of minerals being returned to the soil there. Um, it it uh, tends to absorb water well and hold the water. 
Um, so uh, this is one of the reasons that we uh, are for if you want to take care of watersheds, what you need to do is you need to leave uh, a buffer around streams so that there is something that can prevent rapid runoff into the streams with all the silt and the pesticides and the fertilizers. If you have a, a, a what's a barrier there, usually a, say 15 feet or so of, of trees and other things, this, can, this will slow that down. Uh, it's when, why when you have a forest and you cut everything down, uh, you get problems with erosion, which you didn't have when the forest was there. Okay, because you lose, there's nothing to contribute to that organic layer. So there's also forest spaces. Uh, this should be filled uh, with water and air. And then so obviously the makeup of the soil, how much sand and how much clay determines what the size of the forest spaces is going to be, how much water it can hold, how much air you're going to find. And, and that's, that's important to, to have all of those uh, in the soil. Okay, this is uh, looking at, a, a, again, a, a bank that's been cut here. So this is the, the, this loose litter on top. You have your topsoil called the A horizon. This would have a fair amount of, of those organic materials mixed in. Then you have minerals and clay, the B horizon down below. And then you get into weathered bedrock uh, right here. And below that, at some point, you would come down to just rock. Okay, and this is, and all soils, again, are different everywhere you go. You can see these kind of things, um, not so much along the interstate, but if you drive out on other roads where they, where they have recently uh, cut through somewhere and building the road, you can see these profiles easily along the side of the road. Uh, they're more prominent out west than, I, than usually around here. Usually around here, they get covered in vegetation pretty quickly. Okay, now, so soil is a valuable resource. We are losing tons of soil every year, okay, uh, for, to uh, a number of things that are listed on here. Leaching is what happens when you get a lot of water through it and you're not renewing the minerals that are in there. The water pulls the minerals out and uh, down into the soil farther and eventually they're lost, okay. Uh, agriculture, of course, uses up those nutrients. That's why, why those plants are growing. And if you don't replace them as fast as they're taken out, eventually your yields begin to decline because the plants simply don't have enough uh, nutrients. Um, erosion is a major issue. That's uh, but the picture there is uh, a gully that's formed in an area with no vegetation. If you drive out Route 40, uh, which is State Route 40, uh, most of you probably don't because it doesn't go anywhere really that you probably want to go to. But um, uh, we, we use it to get out to I-85 when we want to go south. Um, it, uh, you see lots of clear-cut areas. And after the clear-cutting is done, you'll, see the, you'll start to see the formation of gullies because there's nothing to keep the water from running off. The water, as it runs off, picks up bits of particles of the soil, and pretty soon you... And those parts of soil, those particles end up in streams, and then they're gone. Okay. Um, salinization is a problem, not around here much, not yet. Um, it is a big problem out west where they irrigate a lot. Uh, when I lived in Montana, uh, we grew uh, mostly uh, wheat around where I was in Great Falls. Uh, but you would drive along and every now and then you'd see a patch where it was, even in the summer, where it was white like snow. And what this usually was a low spot. And what was it that had happened is you, you uh, they were irrigating, water would collect, it would evaporate and leave all of the salts that were in the water, because water is not, it's not just H2O, it's got lots of dissolved stuff in it. Uh, and you couldn't grow anything in those spots anymore. Because the salt, uh, if you remember uh, the, uh, the demonstration you did in, in lab uh, with the celery, the, the salt water prevents the plant from taking up water. Okay, so now that's not a, that's a problem out, out west. It's a problem anywhere where there's a lot of irrigation. It is becoming a problem in areas where sea level is rising and salt water is intruding into the freshwater areas, it's becoming more of a problem. And of course, acid rain. Uh, acid rain, which is a big problem in, in the Blue Ridge Mountains, uh, Shenandoah Valley, uh, 
it uh, damages uh, the plants. It also helps to leach materials out of the soil faster. No, that, but soil is a valuable resource. We can produce the amount of food we can in this country because we have a lot of very valuable soil resources, particularly out in the Midwest. In the Midwest, uh, my ex-wife's uncle was on a, owned a farm in Iowa, and that dirt was as black as can be, and it would go down feet. Topsoil would be feet deep. Okay, but we're losing that every year. A certain amount of that gets washed away by erosion, and you know, the, the, um, we don't have a way to replenish it. It's going to become a problem eventually. It's not a, a resource that you can just take for granted and use year after year and expect it not to eventually be depleted. So, so let's talk about uh, how, uh, since roots need to absorb water and minerals, the ions, Take a look at how they do that. Okay, now we have we're going to look at uh, mycorrhizae, which are fungal uh, uh, interactions, a symbiotic relationship with plant roots. We look at the root nodules, which have to do with uh, nitrogen fixation, so that nitrogen can be available, and then root hairs. Okay, so my, mycorrhizae. This is a mutualistic relationship between the roots of the plant and a fungus that lives in the soil. The, the fungus grows all around the plant roots and the root hairs, and what it does is it increases the surface area for absorption of water and nutrients, and it passes them on into the plant. Now, in return, the plant does provide sugars that are made from photosynthesis, and the network can uh, be very... Uh, uh, extensive as it shows, um, in most of the most uh, forest areas, all of the plants are in, all the trees are interconnected by this fungal network. Uh, it's a whole world down there that we don't even know, we don't even see, we're not even aware that it's there most of the time. Okay, but it's a large part of assisting plants in taking up water and the various ions that are dissolved in that water. It greatly increases surface area. Everything's got to come in through a cell membrane somewhere. The bigger the surface area, the more you can take up. You also have root nodules, which are another mutualistic association, but this is with bacteria. Plants need nitrogen. Okay, I like like all living things need nitrogen. They need it to make amino acids. Every amino acid has at least one nitrogen atom. They need it to make nucleic acids. Remember the nitrogen bases, adenine, cytosine, and all that? Those all you require nitrogen. Atmospheric nitrogen is not usable by plants because nitrogen in the air here, the 80% you're walking around in here and breathing all the time, uh, is uh, N2, which means there are two nitrogen atoms, and there's a there are three covalent bonds holding those two nitrogen atoms together. They don't come apart easily, okay? But there are certain bacteria that have the ability to break those down and uh, make them into usually ammonia, which then can be made into a, 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 a nitrogen source available to the plant. These uh, bacteria actually uh, enter the plant tissue the plant grows a little nodule around them, and down, and here's what they would actually look like on, on the roots. Uh, it's like an infection, except that it doesn't harm the plant, and what it does is it provides <coughs> nitrogen to the plant. Without this, the plants would exhaust the nitrogen, and that's what happens in, in uh, agricultural fields when you're not growing legumes. Legumes would be uh, beans around here, that's mostly soybeans, but any kind of beans, alfalfa, clover, uh, those are all legumes, and they all have these associations with the bacteria. But if you're growing corn, corn sucks the nitrogen out of the soil and doesn't put any back. And so then you are stuck with one of two things. Either you can only grow it in the same field for a couple of years, and then you've got to go somewhere else with it, or you have to add chemical fertilizers, which is pretty much what we do today. Most chemical fertilizers come from petroleum products. So that contributes to the use of petroleum. Very important part of, of the plant growth, though, is this ability to make nitrogen available. Uh, 
so they convert nitrogen to ammonia, and the plants again support them with uh, with uh, glucose. And then the root hair is on the roots. Roots uh, almost impossible to see. You need a you need magnifying glass at least to see them. Uh, they are extensions of the root uh, of the epidermis of the root. That each root hair is a single cell. Okay, and again, it increases the surface area so that the plant can better take up nutrients. Okay? So all three of these things are an important part of the plants being able to get the nutrients that they need out of the soil. And, and, and while plants are not very exciting for most people, um, plants are why you're here and alive because all of your food ultimately comes from plants right now. We don't have alternative sources. Okay, so this is a kind of a cross-section of the root. You should have looked at this in lab, the cross-sections of roots and so on. Um, this one happens to be a dicot plant because you can see the little star of xylem here in the middle of the wall around it. Okay, this is the root of the cortex area uh, and the endodermis here in the middle. Okay, so we have the epidermis out here. These are root hairs, parts of individual cells. We have the cortex, which is mostly going to be the parenchyma-type cells. We have the uh, endodermis here, which is the barrier to getting into the vascular cylinder. Now, water can enter by one of two ways. One way, I'm going to see if I can One way is they can come in through the root hair and then go from cell to cell and they go through the endodermis, which is this layer right here, this purplish colored layer. They can go right on through those cells and on into the, the vascular cylinder, into the xylem, which is gonna take it upwards. Remember, xylem goes up, phloem goes down, or up, or sideways, or anywhere. But all of the water and nutrients that come in go up the plant through the xylem. That's its function. We don't want, the plant controls what gets into the vascular cylinder to some degree. It can reject things, it can accept things, but only if it goes through a cell membrane, okay? That's the only way a plant can, can have any control. So the second pathway that you see on here, you'll notice that this water is simply seeping through between the cells. It's never going into a cell until it gets to the endodermis. And all of the cells of the endodermis have all the way around them this waxy material called the Casparian strip, okay? Uh, and so the water can't get between those cells. Wax and water, now mix, right? Water can't get through there. And now it's forced to go through the cell membrane and through the cell of the endodermis so that the cell maintains control over what is entering the vascular cylinder. Because once it's in the vascular cylinder, it goes into the xylem and it goes throughout the plant. Okay. So the plant has some means of regulating, uh, not so much water, but regulating some of the ions that it would take in uh, out of the soil. Okay. Some plants regulate better than others. Okay. Most plants don't grow in salt areas, but go to a salt marsh around here, and there's all kinds of plants growing out there that they have adaptations that allow them to handle the salt. Uh, what they do is one of two things. Either they secrete it, and if you go out to the, the salt marsh grasses, uh, be careful because some of them have sharp edges, but in the sun you'll see that they sparkle. And if you rub your, uh, wet your finger and rub it along there and then taste it, it's salt. you'll taste salt because they're secreting the salt. I'll get that way. Um, other ones simply block the salt from coming. But most plants can't do that. So salt water prevents most plants from growing. But there are some that are adapted to survival in that environment. Um, they're not competitive with plants. <clears throat> if you took those salt marsh plants and planted them somewhere where there was no salt, they'd be overrun by all the other plants because they're just not competitive. But in the salt marsh, they're very competitive because nobody else can grow them. Okay, so this then 
prevents the water and solids from going between the cells and must go through the cells. And then there are transport proteins in the cell membrane that regulate what goes through. Okay, now once we get it in there, <clears throat> it's going to diffuse through that central area and into the xylem tissue. Now xylem moves only one direction, the one-way process, up, okay? Doesn't do anything else. Uh, <clears throat> it's made up of, uh, well, two types of cells, vessel members and tracheids. The key point here is that at maturity, they are dead cells. These cells are not alive when they're mature. They are simply tubes stacked on top of each other, like microscopic sized little pipes. Now, that means that the plant cannot influence what happens in these, because the cells are dead, at least not directly. So what makes the water move up the plant? That's what we want to look at. So we come to what's referred to as the cohesion tension theory of water transport, okay? Um, We're going to start up here in the leaves. You may not remember what the leaves look like, but the lower part of most dicot leaves uh, is called the spongy tissue, and that's because there's lots of air spaces between, between the cells. This is so that carbon dioxide can get in through the stomata and get to the cells so that we can do photosynthesis. But at the same time, it means that water, which evaporates in those spaces, can leave the plant. We call that transpiration. Water can leave through the leaves by transpiration. So I, if you took the celery and had no leaves on it, it would take up some fluid, but shouldn't take up as much because it doesn't have any leaves on it. That's where the majority of water is lost in plants. That's why deciduous trees dump their leaves in the winter to avoid loss of water. Now around here, this is not such a major issue. Up north, it is a big deal because up there, the, all the water's frozen all winter. There is no water available to the tree, or very little because the ground's frozen. Okay, so they, that's, one, that's how they reduce their water loss in the winter so they can survive until spring. Right, so this is where the water then leaves out of the stomata by you know, the process of transpiration. Right, now, all of these cells in here are coated with a film of water. Because there are a lot of living cells. This is living tissue. Everything's coated with water. Living tissue is mostly water, okay? Now, as we lose the water molecules by transpiration, this applies tension to the water that's already there. So what does that mean? Okay. Okay, so imagine that uh, we have this gap between this table and the door. And I said, okay, I want 15 of you to get up here Link your arms together, block anybody from going out the door. You run from this edge over to the far side of the door. And people have to run the gauntlet to get through and get out. Okay, there's lots of you. You can link your arms like this, and not much is getting through. But what if we, one at a time, we say, okay, you, you're out. And then you, you get out. And okay, so now you're holding farther apart, and now you're having to hold hands, and then you're having to reach. Okay, we're applying tension by removing individuals. Well, that's what happens to the water film on the cells. As water molecules, remember, they're held together by hydrogen bonds. As water molecules are lost, this applies tension to those bonds, and the water molecules are, are, are pulled on. And this results then in water being pulled out of the cell to replace that water that was lost, which then pulls water out of the next cell and out of the next cell, and ultimately to the xylem tubes, which are where the water is coming up. Okay, so this is where it starts. Okay, this is the vein, this is all xylem tissue here. Transpiration creates tension on, on the water molecules here, which pulls water out of the xylem. <clears throat> now, down here in the roots, water came in, we watched how it got through the uh, the endodermis, and it diffuses into the xylem tissue. But water has two properties. 
that are important here. Remember, you, last 101, you talked about the properties of water, and it was, oh, okay, that's great. Uh, I don't know what that is useful for, but it must be, you know, makes water water. Water is unique, okay? Two of them are cohesion and adhesion. Okay, adhesion is water's ability to, to uh, adhere to other surfaces, and cohesion is the ability of water molecules to remain connected to each other. All right, so what's happening in the xylem tube, uh, how many of you have given blood? Most of you? A lot of you, okay. When you go to give blood, they usually take a drop of your blood and they put a little glass capillary tube into the drop. You've seen them do that. Where does the what blood go? Goes up the tube. Oh, wait a minute. Blood's mostly water. How are you making water flow uphill? Water doesn't flow uphill. No, it's not density. What's happening is the water molecules are adhering to the, the walls of that really thin, tiny tube, and then they're pulling their buddies up, and then they adhere up a little higher, and they pull their buddies up by cohesion, adhesion, cohesion, adhesion, cohesion, and they move right up the tube. Until you get enough of them in there that gravity says, okay, that's enough. You weigh too much, you can't go any farther. That's why it never spurts out the top. Okay, It's just a drop of blood. It's not like we're sticking in the vein. That'd be a whole other issue or an artery. Um, okay, the same thing's happening in the xylem. Water molecules that come in in roots adhere to the sides of the xylem. Remember, they're, dead, they're just dead cell walls. Uh, they are coherent, they cohere with each other, they, they have that cohesion, okay? As I pull a water molecule out of the top, that pulls on the next one down, which pulls on the next one down, pulls on the next one, pulls on the next one. And it literally pulls water to the top of the plant. Okay? I know that doesn't make a lot of sense because if you reach into a bucket and try to pull water up out of it, you can't do that. But if you make your tubes tiny enough, and these are microscopic in size, adhesion and cohesion will be strong enough to pull that water, and they can calculate what the maximum is, and it's several hundred feet up is how we get tall trees. Yeah. All right. So, but you notice in that whole process, never once do we say anything about the cell using energy. Now, nothing moves without energy. Okay, you should remember that from 101. No energy, nothing moves, period. So where's the energy coming from to make this work? Okay. So back to the beginning. What's the first thing that has to happen? Loss of water from the leaf. Water evaporates, takes energies coming from sunlight. This is a solar-driven pump that all plants with xylem, with vascular tissue have. Okay. And clearly works very well. <laughs> okay, Especially it's going to be working really well now because the plants are starting to leaf out. They're going to start doing photosynthesis. They're going to need water for that. They need water to keep all the leaves alive. That's the process that's going to be going on. Okay, so transpiration is where it starts up here. It applies tension, which pulls on the water molecules. Cohesion allows them to hang on to each other. And adhesion allows them to stick to the sides of these microscopic tubes to help keep them from falling down. And this is how the plant can get water. Okay, so negative tension in the xylem. This extends down to the roots. Hydrogen bonded water molecules are simply pulled up because they all are connected to each other by hydrogen bonds. So, cohesion, adhesion, properties of water. supply this whole tree this bunch of water. Or if you go out to California you can see redwoods that are tremendously tall. Water can get to the top of it by this process. And there's a variety of ways they've measured uh, that. Uh, I'm not going to get into that right now. Okay. So uh, we have the issue then of uh, conserving water. Uh, obviously the plants don't want to waste water and so 
uh, water moves into the plant cells. When water loss is generally balanced by the osmotic pressure that pulls water into the cells, that pressure puts pressure against the cell wall and helps the plant stay erect. Okay, particularly like your house plants. Now, if you're not replacing enough wa the water as fast as it's being lost, then that pressure in the plant cells decrease, decreases and it loses that turgor, that pressure, and it begins to droop. And we say it's wilting. And if you add water back in, within minutes, they start to come back upright again. And that's how fast the xylem is taking the water. Now, of course, there's not big plants, so maybe this big, but still, the xylem moves that water very, very quickly. Of course, they have a cuticle, the waxy coating on the outside, then this little yellow layer on the sleeve here. Uh, and then the stomata, which regulate the size of those openings for transpiration can occur. So when it gets really dry or when it gets really hot, then they regulate they, those, uh, those openings close down so that transpiration declines, so that the plant does not need as much water. Of course, it also slows down its photosynthesis at the same time. But staying alive beats out photosynthesis for the, for the short run. And then plants adapted to hot climates will take in carbon dioxide at night when they can open the stomata wide. And then during the day, they're mostly closed, but they already stored carbon dioxide inside the plant. So they can do photosynthesis when the sun is on. Okay, so this is, uh, we're not going to get into details here on this, but this is a, a, a let me go back here. Uh, this is what the, uh, these are called guard cells around it. When they're stimulated, they, uh, potassium ions move into them. This draws water in by osmosis. It makes them open. When uh, they're going to close, that potassium is lost, which then draws water out by osmosis, and they, they collapse down. There's also, are also hormones that affect this. Uh, so they, one thing they close then is when there's water stress. In other words, not enough water. That makes sense that they would do that. There's a, a, a hormone called abscisic acid that binds to the receptors. Plants do have stresses on them. And they secrete a hormone, uh, which we'll get into a little bit more on Thursday, or on Wednesday, excuse me. Um, and this binds to the guard cells and then causes the potassium to leave and causes the guard cells to close. Okay. So that plants do have stress on them. We do. Okay. And that's just another good picture of that. All right, so that gets me water to the top of the plant. All right, that's great. So now I can do photosynthesis, and I can build new plant tissues. I can make leaves. I can make new branches. I can make flowers. I can do all that stuff that I need to do to be a plant. But the sugar that's made by photosynthesis is mostly made in the leaves because they're big, broad, flat surfaces that intercept sunlight. But the rest of the plant needs, all the other living cells in that plant need glucose. Think about the roots. No photosynthesis going on in the roots, but the roots are living cells. All living cells need glucose to make ATP, or they die. It's that simple, just like us. Okay, we need we need a source of energy to make ATP. It's mandatory for living things. So, question then is, how does the plant move that their sugars, and how do they move the hormones that are produced? How do they get those to the proper places? In the xylem is only going to do one thing. It's going to go from the roots up. That's it. We're done. Nothing isn't going to help me anymore. So we have a second tissue called phloem. And this carries organic compounds. These cells are living uh, when mature. They do not die. And we have these uh, sieve tube members. And, and if you look at the little holes in the ends of them, that's where that comes from. And and then next to them, they have companion cells. And we'll get into what those do in just a minute. Now, 
We're going to look at something called pressure flow theory. And let me get the diagram. Let me go back to this. All right, so somewhere in the plant, or anywhere in the plant, where more sugar is being produced than those cells need, we consider that to be a source of glucose. And actually, it usually gets turned into sucrose, which is glucose and fructose uh, for, for storage. So how do I move that somewhere? Well, when I have excess glucose or excess sugar, it is actively transported into by the companion cells into the sieve tubes of the clone. They actively transported it. Now, when I increase the concentration of sugar inside these cells, this creates an osmotic pressure. Remember osmosis? I have an unequal concentration on either side of a membrane. It tends to draw water into the one where the high concentration is. So I load the sugars into the phloem. This pulls water from the xylem into the phloem as well. And it creates pressure. Okay. Now, somewhere else in the plant, let's say in this case, down here by the fruit that it's trying to make, it's using sugars. Fruits don't, strawberries don't make, I mean, strawberry fruit doesn't make sugar. It has glucosynthesis. So I need to deliver sugar there. And so what will happen is those companion cells will actively transport sugar out of the phloem and into the cells of the, I'll say in this case, the strawberry. Now, once I take the sugar out of there, the force that drew the water in by osmosis is now gone, and the water leaves by the same process. This creates a low-pressure area. And what happens when you have a fluid that's connected and you have a high pressure and a low pressure? It flows from one to the other. The water simply flows from high pressure to low pressure and everything dissolved in it flows right along with it. Pressure flow theory. It's the same thing that happens when you open the, uh, when you go to the sink and you turn on the water. You got a low pressure there. We even call it a sink. It's the same thing we call it here. And somewhere there's a source of water at a higher pressure. If there isn't, you don't get any water out of the faucet. Somebody, somewhere, is applying pressure to the system. Whether it's the waterworks or if you live in a smaller town, it might be uh, from a water tower that's supplying the pressure. Somebody is applying the pressure behind it. And the water simply flows from high pressure to low pressure. Plant does the same thing. So at one time of the year, the uh, like right now, leaves are being built, right? You see them opening, they're growing, actively growing. That requires energy. That means they need sugars. That means they to make ATP to do that. The plant stored sugars in the roots over the winter. And so right now, the source of the roots, because that's where the extra sugar is, and the, and the sink is the leaves, where we're using that sugar to build new leaves and to make the branches longer and all that. That's what's going to be going on. Later in the year, when those are fully mature and they're, they're doing photosynthesis like crazy, now they're going to become sources and the sink is going to be somewhere else. Okay, if it's an apple tree, it may be over here with this apple, and then as it starts to do, uh, maybe another spot on the tree, uh, and so, basically, the tree regulates the movement of those nutrients or those organic molecules by this source and sink process. It's just a pressure flow. Now, this requires ATP because I have to actively load the sugars into the xylem, excuse me, into the phloem, and then actively transport them back out again. The sugar will not go through the cell membrane unassisted. Plus, in the leaves, I got a high concentration in the phloem and probably a lower concentration out in these leaves, and I need to, I'm going to have to actively transport that to shove it into the, into the phloem. This is the pressure flow theory of how phloem functions. So, photosynthetic products are transported normally as sucrose, uh, which is a, a, a disaccharide, a two sugar compound. 
that generally excess sucrose is stored in starch and roots. We call this sometimes translocation. You're just moving it from one place to another. The source is a high pressure area, the sink is a low pressure area. Fluid just flows through the tubes from the high to the low pressure. That's it. Here's a, a diagram that shows you that. Okay, so how high can the pressure be? Well, this is an aphid, and the pressure of the water, they, they insert their little proboscis because what they do is they, they drink the sap of plants. In this case, the, the xyl, remember the phloem is right underneath the bark or right underneath the outer edge. They insert into the phloem, and the pressure of that can be so strong that they literally cannot digest the sugars fast enough as it comes in. And they will excrete these little droplets, which are basically sugar water, which is why ants hang around. Or if you've ever touched a stem that's got a lot of aphids on it, it's all sticky, right? Because they're leaving sugar water all over the place. Because they're pressure of the water in the foam is high enough that they cannot digest it fast enough. And so they just have to just dump some of it. Okay, so these are the two big, big things in, in this chapter. I know a little bit about soils, but the two major things, are, three major things are, how do, we, how do roots get water and minerals in them? Okay. How do they get to that vascular cylinder in the middle? Okay. Uh, so the root structure and the absorption of water and minerals. Then we want to look at the xylem transport system. How does that work? Okay. It works by transpiration, loss of water from the leaves, which then applies tension to the water here, which pulls the water up the xylem from below. And then we want to look at uh, the other major issue here is uh, how do they move the organic compounds through foam tubes by pressure flow. Read what you want uh, here. When you see the questions, uh, you'll see there will be a question on each of these. Okay. Right, questions about that? Well, then the next thing we're going to look at when we start here is uh, a little bit about plant reproduction. Okay, so I'll just be fairly quick. But, but very appropriate to start off with images of bees since uh, bees are uh, declining in numbers these days, so there have been, been issues with that. Um, and we're going to be looking at flowering plants here, okay? Because uh, I'm going to look at non-vascular plants or seedless vascular, or even gymnosperms. Uh, their their reproduction is a bit different than this. We're just going to look at flowering plants in this particular section. Okay, so angiosperms, flowering plants, almost all of them reproduce sexually. They, many of them can reproduce asexually as well. And in fact, all, many of you, if you've ever uh, taken a leaf off a plant, stuck it in water and waited for the roots to grow and then planted it, you have cloned it, your plant. You have asexually reproduced that plant. It's easy to do, okay? Uh, but they all produce, almost all of them will produce flowers and they reproduce sexually. Now, uh, well, like I said, while they can reproduce uh, sexually, uh, some reproduce asexually in other ways. They have underground stems, and they'll send up new trees. This is all one tree. I mean, genetically, it's all one tree. Even though there are multiple trunks, aspen trees do this. Uh, they go out west. Aspens are, are quite common trees out there. And a patch of aspen trees <laughs> generally, and they can cover a couple of acres, are usually all genetically identical. They're all one tree. They're all connected underground. That's an asexual type of reproduction. 
this is a plant called the cilantro. Some people uh, you can buy these in, in uh, plant uh, in, in their uh, nursery. They, they form these little like plantlets along the edge of the leaves. These normally will fall off and become plants. This is also asexual because this, these are going to be genetically identical to the original plant. Okay, now, so when conditions are stable and the plant is well adapted to its environment, asexual reproduction is a valuable way of, of reproducing because it's quick. Okay, it's relatively fast. But Sexual reproduction, and you should remember this from back last semester, produces genetic variation. And so if, since the world is not a constant, um, and it's certainly the way things are now, and probably always have been, um, <clears throat> you increase your chance of success as a species now, not as an individual, by doing sexual reproduction. So you get a wide range of, of offspring, some of whom will be adapted to whatever conditions that you currently have. Some of them won't be so well adapted and they won't grow. That's just the way it works. From a species viewpoint, that's what, you know, that's what this is about. Perpetuation of species. Okay, we looked at uh, the alternation of generation and uh, life cycle here. Sporophyte produces sporophyte meiosis. Uh, mitosis produces gametophytes. Gametes, fertilize, and and so on. A basic reproductive cycle. All right. So if we're doing that, looking at uh, an actual plant, this is an apple, apple tree. Yeah, a cherry. Here's a cherry tree. All right. So we have the flower. The flower has male and female sections to it. Down here in the ovary is the female part. It produces an ovule, which goes through meiosis to produce megaspores. One of them survives, grows into a female butterfly. Over here on the anthers, in the pollen sacs, we go through meiosis to produce microspores, which are become male gametophytes, which hopefully land on the stigmatous part of the female portion, grow down through here, and fertilize both the, the egg and the uh, endosperm in the middle and become embryonic plant. Well, become a seed first, and then if planted, this could grow up to be a disembarked plant. Typical sexual reproductive cycle. So there are four parts to, uh, four what are called whorls to a flower. And all flowers, well, most flowers have all four. Some do not. They're called incomplete flowers. I mean, they're, they're, that's just the way those particular plants are. But the first one down there at the bottom is made up primarily of the seat, what are called sepals. And sepals are going to be green. Usually they are not colored, although there are occasions where they are. But they, they <clears throat> most flowers you would look at are going to be green. The second world makes the petals, the, the bright, showy, colorful portion, which attracts pollinators. The third world produces the anther and filament, which make up the stamen. That's the male portion of the plant. And the fourth whorl produces the female portion of the plant, sigma style, and then ovule and ovary down below. Okay. Uh, the female portion in general is referred to as a carpal. The male portion is a stamen. So, and, and these are governed by different genes. There has been work done uh, with a very uh, small plant. Uh, it's a, in the mustard family, and where they have. Uh, figured out which that each of these different areas is uh, governed by a certain by a certain gene. And if you knock out that gene, then it doesn't develop that segment of the flower. Let's look at a flower, but you don't get all the parts. Now, so anthers divide to produce microspores, ovules produce megaspores. Okay, we already looked at this. Now some flowers just dump their uh, pollen into the wind. Okay, so this is a, uh, uh, this looks like, uh, not an aspen, uh, I'll think of it in a minute. Uh, the leaves are kind of unique. These are called catkins here. They produce lots of pollen, and you can see the pollen in the, in the picture. These are the kinds of plants that you have allergies to. 
because they put out a lot of pollen into the air. Because if your plan is to pollinate by just using the wind, you better make a lot of pollen. The wind is not a reliable source. Most of your pollen is going to end up on the ground and dead. So make lots and lots of pollen. Okay, others uh, attract animals to move pollen for them. And they don't need to produce that much pollen because it's going to be transported directly to another flower. Okay? And you should think of insects, but bees would be in here, beetles, hummingbirds, bats will uh, uh, pollinate some certain flowers in the, in the desert and also in the tropics. Obviously flowers that bats pollinate open at night, not during the day. And they're usually white colors more easily seen at night. Flowers that open during the day are usually more colorful. Alright, so the pollen grain arrives here. Pollen tube grows down to where the, uh, where the is right down here. Comes down, two sperm nuclei come down, and we have double fertilization. One fertilizes the egg, the other fertilizes these two cells here. Polynuclei to form the endosperm which is going to be the nutrients uh, in the seed. This will form a zygote, which is an embryonic sporophyte plant. Okay. So this is the double fertilization. Okay, so after that, the seed develops. Here's your embryonic sporophyte. Here's the endosperm. And then a coating, is a protective coating is around it. And this is usually inside of a fruit. This is a seed um, consists of the embryo, the endosperm, and the seed coat. Uh, here you can see uh, beginnings of each. Uh, this is a monopod, this is a dipod. This one has one seed leaf, cotyledons or seed leaves. This is corn. Okay. This is the endosperm that's partly eaten to the down here is the, uh, the embryonic plant. Uh, this one has uh, two cotyledons, so this is a dicotyledonous plant. Uh, and these are in these plants, the, the, the endosperm is stored in cotyledons. You have down, you have the embryonic plant right here. Embryonic shoot right here, okay. and those are your plants. So when you're eating seeds, you're, you're eating, this is what you're eating. Now, seed coat is really tough, protects it until uh, conditions are, are good, and then um, <clears throat> this just shows you the sequence here, flower uh, fertilization and drops its petals after being pollinated, beginning with formation of the fruit, fruit grows larger and larger and eventually and the fruit is there primarily to attract animals to eat the fruit and carry the seeds to other places. Seeds are usually not affected by the enzymes in the digestive tract. Apples are a favorite feed of uh, deer. In fact, I, if you ever watch uh, Northwoods Law or something, I think it's on uh, Animal Channel big deal. People put out apples to attract deer to leave them, but they do it. Some people do it anyway. Okay. Now, I'm not going to get into the different types of fruit, uh, but there's just a list here. These are just three of them. Uh, there are many other types of seeds or fruits, uh, but these are just some examples. Uh, this is a simple fruit because there's only one seed in it. Um, this one has many separate parts. Each of these is a little seed here on the outside. That's are most of the berries, and I know each fruit's around here. And then here you have a multiple fruits, multiple ovaries fused together. Okay. Um, now, fruits uh, protect and disperse the seeds. That's what they're for. Um, they can be carried away uh, either by being eaten, by sticking to uh, animals, and then eventually falling off somewhere. Uh, if you walk through a field in the fall, you'll end up with seeds stuck to you usually. Dogs especially accumulate them, but they're, and, and as do other animals, not just dogs. I mean, any animal that runs 
to their kind of butts in the sea. And some are uh, airborne, you know, like antioxidants, very successful in doing that. So uh, basically, growth begins with germination. When you with your first stem, these are the seed leaves here, the cotyledons. You pick the first ones you see, and then you pick the actual seeds, or I mean leaves, developing monopods. You start off with one leaf coming up. Bipods start off with two. Unicots what they're now called. Now, uh, plant growth doesn't just happen by itself. Um, there is uh, there are plant hormones that help regulate growth, and uh, <clears throat> we'll take a quick look at, at these. These are kind of the five classic hormones. There have been more found since. But these are the, the five very uh, classic ones, and we'll look and see what each one of these does. Okay, so auxins, um, there's actually a whole group of these. They stimulate elongation of cells in the stem and fruit development. They suppress the growth of lateral buds. Now, uh, in, whenever you have a leaf here, you're going to have a lateral bud here in the axle. Up here, okay. Now, this is your terminal one here. Oxygen from here will suppress the lateral buds so that the tree end up, or most plants end up with a roughly pyramid like shape. And as that tip grows farther and farther away, the amount of oxygen that gets down to those lateral buds declines and eventually they begin to grow. So if you want to make your plant really dense, let's say you're, you've got a shrub or a hedge and you want it to be thick so things can't easily come through it, what you do is you go along and you periodically trim it. You cut off the terminal portion and that will release those lateral buds from being inhibited and they will grow and you'll get lots of branching and you'll get a nice thick hedge. don't ever want to cut the, the, uh, the terminal one off on a Christmas tree, however, because then you don't, if you have a Christmas tree and you look inside and you see the trunk goes up and up and up and then suddenly like that, somebody at some point, that terminal got damaged and a new lateral bud took over for it. Okay. And, and you can see that in trees around here. You can see it easily now when there's no leaves on them. Uh, you'll see tree trunks that go up and then suddenly have a little bit of a curve like that. A lot of classic experiments done with oxen. Uh, Darwin did experiments with oxen uh, to determine what they do. Uh, but basically, they cause elongation of, of cells in the stem. Which is the primary means by which plants grow, is the cells get longer. Uh, if you remember looking at the roots, the onion root, cells down at the bottom are very tiny, and as you went farther up the root, cells got longer and longer. That taking in the water and, ex and extending like that is where most of the plant growth comes from. Okay, then we have cytokinins. Uh, they stimulate cell division. Um, and also stimulate growth of lateral buds. So as the, the tip here gets farther away from the, down in this area, now what they've done here, this is one where you notice there are no lateral here they cut that, and then you start to get lateral blood development. Also, as this gets farther away, the amount of oxygen getting down here becomes less. Cytokinins produced down on the roots, it moves up through the plant, and when this gets far enough away, the cytokinin becomes dominant, and you get lateral growth. Okay, this tradition where when the apical shoot is in place, shoot tip and it restricts growth immediately below it is called apical dominance. So when you trim that hedge, what you're doing is removing that apical dominance so that the lateral shoots can grow and you get a much thicker 
Uh, gibberellins uh, stimulate shoot elongation uh, and fruit growth. And so here is uh, an example uh, from grapes, one on the, uh, in his uh, right hand, uh, was just allowed to grow naturally. The one on the left, the gibberellins were applied, and you can see they got a lot more grapes produced. This is not a GMO thing. Gibberellins is a natural plant hormone. We just added some Okay, ethylene uh, it, uh, increases ripening of fruit and the shedding of leaves and flowers. So, um, the old thing about one bad apple in a group will make the rest go bad is entirely true because as it begins to rot, it'll produce a lot of ethylene, which will then cause the other apples to, uh, to ripen faster. Uh, if you want to ripen, uh, uh, you know, the same is true with bananas. Bananas ripen, they produce ethylene. You keep them in a bunch, uh, they're all producing ethylene. The ethylene concentration gets higher, they ripen faster, usually faster than you can eat them. Uh, and you end up with brown bananas, which I have little use for. My wife uses them to make uh, some of her uh, smoothies. Uh, but so ethylene, uh, so if you want to inhibit uh, ripening, you remove ethylene. So when I lived in Alaska, all of our fruits and vegetables came from uh, the lower 48, most of them did, from Seattle. They were shipped up in containers, barges, that would take two to three weeks to get to the port of Anchorage. And what they do, these have been sealed. They have pumped out the, much of the air and replaced a lot of it with inert gases and nitrogen so that there will be no ethylene in it. And therefore, things do not don't rot, they, they stay fresh. Well, I mean, as fresh as they're going to. And that's commonly done today. The apples that you're buying um, about now, if they're US apples, they've been stored somewhere all, all winter long. Apples aren't ripening and growing anywhere right now. Now they may be from another country, which, you know, especially from the other side of the equator where it's fall now down there. Uh, but uh, so they manipulate uh, produce to, for freshness or for shelf life, which is more of an issue. So the apples that you're getting now, if they're American grown apples, have been sitting in storage somewhere where the ethylene's been removed constantly so that they don't ripen any farther. Seems to work. Understanding what does allows us to manipulate the hormones. And then there's abscisic acid. Uh, this inhibits shoot growth and it uh, stimulates uh, leaf drop in the fall. Uh, this is a stress hormone. In the fall, plants go under stress and they, they eventually drop all their leaves. Uh, they just keep seeds dormant. Uh, so seeds that are produced will not germinate at the wrong time of year. They'll have a certain amount of abscisic acid in them which gradually declines over time so that they won't germinate until the what, you know, till spring. Uh, these, all of these, these are the five major basic hormones that uh, we, we understand in plants. So this is kind of a summary. Uh, if you're looking at the mature plant, uh, it tells you a little bit about what you know, activate, are still active. Acid inhibits shoot growth, maintains dormancy of buds. Uh, right now, that's going away because trees around here, plants around here, are starting to bud out with their leaves. Uh, cytokinins delay leaf senescence, in other words, delay dropping of leaves. Ethylene uh, makes fruit ripen faster and promotes uh, dropping of leaves. Abscission is what that's called. That's why abscisic acid is called what it is because leaf drop is called leaf abscission. Abscisic acid. Opsin stimulate elongation, uh, suppress lateral bud growth, gibberellin stimulate cell division in the shoot and in the roots, uh, and then abscisic acid uh, maintains seed dormancy, gibberellins break dormancy, cytokinin stimulates uh, cell division in the germinating seed so that it can grow up out of the ground. 
And that usually has uh, to do with the amount of light you see that's used in film. Now, we generally think of plants as not being, not doing anything. They just kind of sit there, okay? wave in the wind, grow, produce whatever seeds they're going to produce. But they actually actively respond to their environment, which is not something that we would normally think about. And that's what we'll do on Thursday, or, or excuse me, on Wednesday. I keep saying Thursday. I guess that's just wishful thinking. Okay. On Wednesday, we'll do that. And then the exam is next next Monday. All the questions are posted. So uh, please, uh, well, it's up to you. You can do with them what you will. No second chance quiz this time. <laughs>